Reflections on Interpretation, Talking Story with Guides and Interpreters. I am Tim Merriman, your host, coming to you from the Big Island of Hawaii. Today's guest is Ryan Fincham, Director of Center for Protected Area Management at Colorado State University. Welcome, Ryan. Well, it's great to see you again, Ryan. Uh, we've known each other perhaps a couple of decades because I used to be in Fort Collins, Colorado, where you live and work. Um, how are things with you? It's it's things are great, Tim, and I really appreciate the invitation. It's great to be here having this uh, having this chat with you. Well, like every interview I do, I go back and read up people's um, CV background material. And uh, I know you went to Louisiana State University for an undergraduate degree. Are you from Louisiana or did you grow up there? Yeah, well, um, actually, no. Um, I, I landed at LSU, I guess, in a in a roundabout fortuitous way. Um, I was a military brat and uh, grew up my whole life um, living and living and going to school on or near military bases. Uh, most of that time overseas in Europe, um, and always was very grateful that my parents lived, uh, you know, had us live off of the military bases within the local communities in Italy and Germany. And um, that really, really generated an interest um, in travel and other cultures, other languages, um, and things that not all Americans uh, <clears throat> like, what, like soccer and the metric system <laughs> and things like that. But anyways, um, I, uh, I had a, um, a high school sweetheart that um, went to LSU, and I started school at Southern Illinois um, at Edwardsville. So a branch campus there in Southern Illinois. And I think you're familiar with that part of the world because I believe you were a Saluki, a Saluki if, I don't, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, but I, um, after one semester, um, I said, you know what? Uh, I'm going to lose that girl if I don't go after her. So I transferred to LSU. Incredible. And I got her. <laughs> well, and I know Michelle and she's a wonderful. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Actually, I grew up 60 miles east of Edwardsville, Illinois, and I was at the dedication of that campus when it was first built, and I actually took the Saluki dogs to the campus. I, I was one of the people at uh, the Carbondale campus that took care of the Saluki dogs, <laughs> so I had Amazing. very sick Saluki dogs in one of the university cars all the way up there, <laughs> some hundred miles. <laughs> nice. Uh, did you have any inkling when you were an undergrad, that this was going to be kind of your career path? Well, I mean, I, you know, I, I think I brought uh, from high school this interest in in things international and, and um, but I wasn't really certain kind of what, you know, what I wanted to do with all of that. And um, I did an internship in Washington, D.C. as an undergrad with uh, Comonics International. Um, and they're, they're a kind of a consulting firm that does environmental agriculture and other kind of development work around the world. And, um, you know, it, 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 it opened my eyes to all the different potential career paths that existed for being engaged, you know, as a global citizen in, in issues in the U.S., but also around the world. And um, I think that that coupled with the fact that I studied abroad three times when I was at LSU, all three of them happened to be in Latin America, started to bring together a series of things that led to, to the career path that I have today. So what were you doing between LSU and going to Colorado State University for a master's degree? 
So I went, I actually went straight in. So I, when I was wrapping up at, at Louisiana State University, um, I went to a, a couple of conferences. I, I met a guy named George Wallace. And um, George, you know, I, I was starting to wonder what I wanted to do after undergrad because I had this general environmental sciences degree. And it, what, what I was seeing is it wasn't quite enough to get me what I, the kind of jobs that I wanted. And so I needed to pursue that next level education. And all roads kind of pointed to George Wallace. You know, there was this person that I, I started to realize that I wanted to work at the intersection of Latin America, ecotourism and protected areas. These were like three themes that started to come together based on my undergraduate studies, my internship, and my study abroad. And, and, and basically, that, those were the, that was the space that George Wallace was working in. And so essentially, I, I went straight from LSU to CSU to work with George. Yeah, and for those who don't know George, he's retired now, but uh, and I believe he's a poet. And But he, he was a Marine. He served in the Peace Corps in Latin America. And he's had a number of students work with him that have gone on to be career professionals working in Latin America. So like, like you. So. Yeah, correct. Correct. And, and, you know, George, many people may be familiar with George as the author of the authority of the resource right. uh, technique that's still used widely by interpreters. And, and so I, I was grateful to that opportunity. And, um, and so I came to Colorado state where I started to work on my master's degree program and, um, quickly found out that they had something called the master's internationalist program where I could combine my master's degree research and, and coursework with, you know, the two, two and a half years of, of, uh, of volunteer time in the Peace Corps. And George, obviously, as a return Peace Corps volunteer and as my advisor, um, highly recommended that as an option. And so um, I, I wasn't originally aware that that was something I could pursue. And so I quickly jumped onto that opportunity um, and uh, was able to kind of combine what, what we were working on on the master's front with this, this idea that I always had of, of going to the Peace Corps, which in large part came about because of my time in D.C., where uh, we, at Commonics, when I was an intern, practically everybody I came into contact with that, was, that had jobs that I was interested in, every one of them had Peace Corps on their CV. And so that kind of made me realize, in addition to the master's degree, the Peace Corps was another piece that I needed to put together to put together a resume that would hopefully lead to some, some reasonable employment sometime in the future. <laughs> yeah, that was, for me, always the road not taken. <clears throat> I had... Um... I made a lot of life decisions in the early 70s that kept me from going in the Peace Corps. And and yet I met a number of people through over time that I felt kind of knew who they were and what they wanted to be better because they had been in the Peace Corps than those of us who didn't go. I, I had a Spanish foreign exchange student live with me in high school. He went on to become the director of energy for the European Union, nuclear engineer. Um, I lived with his family summer of 68 in Madrid, and it opened my eyes. A small town boy from Illinois, I had, unlike you who had lived in Europe, I really had no world view. And uh, it it gave me one, and it made me extremely conscious that I wanted to have some sort of opportunity to work internationally and to learn more about how people were, were approaching these challenges other places. Well, at Colorado State, uh, well, that's a rich history. What I believe the guy who originally wrote to 
to uh, President Kennedy about the Peace Corps, wrote a concept paper for it, was at Colorado State. So school has Correct. deep history. Yeah. Correct. Yeah, no, that, that, that whole idea, you know, C, the CSU at that time already had a pretty robust um, uh, extension program that was reaching out to um, all the counties, you know, across the state to really figure out how to to bridge the the new the knowledge to action gap that was that was starting to emerge, you know, in higher education um, uh, universities, and so um, from you know from 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 early on in CSU's history, there was this idea of if we're going to generate new knowledge, that new knowledge needs to get out into the hands of of practitioners that are working to to improve people's lives, and so that that led it's from from a state concept on into Kennedy's concept for the Peace Corps. That's great. And you were in the Galapagos uh, during your tenure with the Peace Corps, yes? Correct. Correct. Yeah, we um, we really um, had a very fortunate site in one sense because, I mean, every site, I think, is a good site. It's all, all about what you make out of it. But um, it did really provide, uh, provide and I, I say us because I served as a Peace Corps uh, volunteer with my wife. We went as, in as, mar- as a married couple. Um, and um, it sure was nice having that built-in support system when we when you're you know a thousand kilometers off the coast of Ecuador, not really interacting with your fellow volunteers that much. To have this built-in support system out in the islands um, because it was pretty pretty dang remote. Yeah, I, I've been to the Galapagos Islands. I confess I don't think I learned very much because we had one of those boat tours where our guides really didn't do a very good job. Um, they were identifiers. You could ask them a question, they would identify what you were pointing at, but they said very, they were not good interpreters. And, mm-hmm. uh, and we did not meet anyone in the local community, which I, re, uh, we lead Ecotourist East Africa and, and always, we take people to see the wildlife and the most common comment when they come back is, I fell in love with the people there and I didn't expect that. And I presume that would be true in the Galapagos as well. Is that fair? Oh yeah. The, yeah. The, you know, people, people will still come back to this day from the Galapagos and, and, and go, I had no idea any, any people lived there, you know, and there's, you know, there's 30, 30 plus thousand people that live on, on several of the different islands and um, just amazing people that have come from all over Ecuador um, and, you know, to some degree from other parts of the world, but, you know, as, as an Ecuadorian province, um, people from all over the country now call uh, the Galapagos home. Of course, that immigration out to the islands isn't without its challenges because the resources are very scarce. Water especially is very scarce. Uh, but at the same time, it requires a population to to maintain um, the, the tourism industry there and, um, you know, you have uh, you have uh, city governments now there, and you have a fishing industry that's um, increasingly becoming more sustainable over time. And so um, we 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 have incredible friends in the Galapagos, and in fact, we're excited after being gone from peace from our site for over twenty years. Just this last December, a year ago, um, we were able to take our kids back to the Galapagos to see where really where we you know we lived. We got married. Um, we went into Peace Corps and went to the Galapagos. So we spent really the first two and a half years honeymoon you could say in the in the Galapagos Islands and our kids to this day 
um, our memory of that because both of our kids uh, carry names of islands in the Galapagos. Our son's named Darwin, and our and our daughter's name is Isabella. Uh, Isabella is the largest island in, in the Galapagos. Darwin is one of the more remote islands, but also obviously there's uh, a connection there with Charles Darwin, uh, the scientist who spent time um, a, a very small amount of time in the Galapagos, but nevertheless it had a big impact on on the islands. Like most people with a zoology degree, I studied Darwin's travels a great deal. And I read the book that was written about the uh, voyage of the Beagle. And um, I was fascinated by, I guess, part of my disappointment with my particular boat tour I was on was that they really didn't bring Darwin up at all. And uh, when they would point out a finch that was he had named or that had carried his name in the name of the Finch. It, it was just, I've named it. So I'm done. That's all. That's all you're going to get. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's a, you know, there's like, I think close to seven or 800 guides in the Galapagos islands. And, and right. some of them are, are very good. And some of them require quite a bit of training um, still, you know, but uh, it's interesting that my first actual um, exposure to interpretation kind of in a more substantive way actually happened in the Galapagos Islands because I was able and very fortunate to take a, a two-week training with another one of your former guests of this podcast, Dr. Sam Ham, uh, And he was there training a cohort of, of, uh, of local guides. And we got, uh, my wife and I both got invited in to take the training. And then we, that was early on in our time in the Galapagos. And we were able to continue to develop some interpretive training for um, some of the local environmental education programs, kind of extending it beyond just the guides that we're going to be using the interpretation. Um, and so that was kind of my intro um, to interpretation. And then when I came, when we came back in, uh, from the, from, from Galapagos and from our Peace Corps service, the first thing I did when I got back was I actually enrolled in the CIG and CIT uh, training programs um, with NAI um, that were taught by you, Tim and uh, Lisa. Lisa Brochu, my wife, my training partner. Uh -huh. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. No, I, I remember that. Well, I was, you actually worked with fishermen on your th thesis, though, didn't you? I did. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, one of the things that, that, that you have to do when you're working, I think, in, in, in conservation and, and interpretation and other fields around the world is you have to be flexible and adaptive and, and be willing to not just come in with your preconceived idea of what you're going to study. And I did arrive in the Galapagos with a proposal that I'd already, permitted, uh, already presented to my committee back at CSU. Um, and when I got there, I realized that wasn't the most salient issue on people's minds. I was going to look at like ecotourism development and the diversification of experiences on different islands. And what was real at the time was uh, was conflict between the fishing community and the conservation community over catch limits and the way fisher, uh, the fisheries was, were being managed, uh, which fishers were involved and to what degree, distribution of benefits. There was a whole series of things that were really causing conflicts. And so I, I rapidly adjusted my proposal and my work to be able to interview 75% of the fishers on all three of the main islands where there were organized cooperatives 
and to really get that kind of get an idea of what was working and what wasn't working and, and, um, and from their perspective, you know, and it, it was interesting because there was a lot of re, uh, resistance initially because pe people weren't really sure, like, well, who's this outside person coming in and, um, you know, going to interview us and what are they going to do with our information? Are they going to twist our words and, and this and that? And I think when, when, when many of the fishers started to understand that I was very well embedded within the community, I had already known most of their kids already because we were running an environmental education program, um, you know, slowly but surely, I was able to open up the opportunity to sit down and interview people all across the islands and, 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 and then report back to um, the conservation authorities on what might work better in terms of communication and, um, and management of the fisheries uh, on the islands. And I can well imagine that Dr. George Wallace was very comfortable with adjusting your work to meet a need rather than simply do what you what you might do absolutely absolutely he was he was he's been you know george wallace and his wife nancy wallace um, who they both were peace corps volunteers as well um have been just so supportive over the years both when i was a, as a graduate student and um i know i'm kind of fast forwarding but even today uh, with the work that I'm doing with the Center for Protected Area Management, uh, George and Nancy are have become our biggest benefactors of our center. Um, and there's nothing, I think, that perhaps instills as much confidence and hope as when you have someone that's donating their hard-earned income to help support what you're trying to build. And so, you know, whether it was him supporting me in the field in the Galapagos to change my idea or continuing to support the center that he created and that I, I now have the fortune to be leading, um, you know, uh, George Wallace and his wife, Nancy, have been just incredible, incredible supporters over the years. Well, I want to come back to CPAM a little later. I want to take you down a little side channel for a moment. Uh, tell us about Emerald Planet and your, I yeah. think your tour company that has done a lot of work throughout Latin America and maybe other places that I don't know about. What? what were yeah, you yes. Yeah, so when I when I got back from the Galapagos Islands um, and wrapped up my master's degree program, I connected with a, a business partner based in Boulder, Colorado, and and we kind of reformulated a, a concept that he had he had already launched um, into a into a um, a co-owned business called Emerald Planet uh, Conservation Tours, and um, essentially we were all about helping conservation NGOs leverage amazing ecotourism experiences to help tell the story of their work. Um, in conservation in Latin America, and then subsequently utilize those experiences and the connections they made on those trips to raise money for their programs in the places that we were visiting. And so that I that carried on uh, from about 2001 until just a few years ago when we finally decided to sunset um, Emerald Planet. Uh, we had a good run. We did a, a number of amazing trips. Our primary partner or, or client was the Nature Conservancy, and we ran over 70 trips for the Nature Conservancy during that period for different, different kinds of groups, from general members to major donors to even um, Nature Conservancy staff trips. Um, and it really provided me with an opportunity to see ecotourism, not from the academic side, which was the way I'd always, I'd always approached it, or from the trainer side, who's trying to prepare people to develop ecotourism experiences, but from the, the private business side to see you know, where, where local businesses um, can succeed, what their challenges are, you know, um, and, and that gave me probably the best 
the best opportunity to truly understand ecotourism was, was just by being in the front lines, trying to run experiences, run, you know, run trips. Yeah. We've done that with uh, two countries in East Africa, with Tanzania and Rwanda, always with an emphasis in trying to use local owned tour companies and guides um, because as you know, so often some of the big biggest tour companies are owned by Americans or Europeans and the money uh, migrates somewhere else. I, I'm always yeah. an advocate for staying at a tented lodge that's owned by a person who grew up in that country and who's trying to make things work for local people as employment. And uh, so I admire what you've done with Emerald Planet and the fundraising side of it. it as you know, I my first uh, eco tour I worked on as a leader was for Bat Conservation International, taking people to Belize, and and I soon learned that most of the people on the tour who would pay that much for a tour were quite capable of being a large donor, and if we said the right things, they become a large donor, and that's yeah, a more yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it was it, it, I, I, you know, it's um the. My life is so so busy to the point now that I wasn't able to keep those the, that business side of things going. But it, I I learned so much during that period of time, created deeper connections with uh, so many protected areas and in local communities that provide tourism opportunities, um, and just you know learned more about um, quality experiences and and um, how to tell stories. You know, talk about an incredible opportunity to have to put in be able to put interpretation into practice. Uh, when trying to connect people to the importance of the work of these uh, NGOs, um, uh, you know, across the landscapes. Um, so I feel very fortunate to have had that opportunity. We we were prim primarily focused in Mesoamerica. So we worked from kind of Mexico to Panama, a little bit in the Caribbean, but that's the area that we focused primarily in, in, the, in that region of the world. Well, and I uh, had a glimpse as an outsider in Fort Collins when I was director, executive director of National Association for Interpretation of your summer course in August each year. And I was very impressed with that. Does that still go on? Yeah. So it's, you know, this, our summer course, which um, it was kind of, it's kind of been on hiatus for five years now, um, ever since the pandemic, um, you know, the last time we offered it was in 2019. And um, we just, you know, it's taken us a little while to get it back up and running, um, partly because we need to we need to regroup on the funding sources. But we also said, let's take this time. You know, we, we had run it 29 times prior, you know, prior to the pandemic, uh, 29 years had, we had been running that program. And um, we said, you know, as we as we launch the next year, uh, which will be our 30th anniversary, we said, you know, this is probably a good time to take stock of where of where we've been and, and, and what the future of of. Uh, of protected areas in Latin America is going to be. And so we spent a lot of time listening and talking to our past participants. We spent some time talking to um, interested participants that hadn't yet come um, to just kind of listen in and, and hear and gather that feedback. And then we use that feedback um, plus our own kind of our own perception about the future. And, and we, we, we created some major changes to the program and we're excited. I'm excited to report that we're now in the final process of recruiting a cohort of participants that will, that will start back up in 2024. Um, so we're right now on the cusp. And, and the exciting thing is after a five-year hiatus, you kind of wonder, you know, did we lose 
our mojo? Like, do we still have it? Is this still of interest? And we had close to 140 applications from every country in the region. And um, we've had, we have more fully funded participants than we've ever had in the history of the program. So I think maybe that's just some, some, some kind of pent up demand for the, for the, for the program. And maybe some of the NGOs have had some residual funding that they've held on to. Um, but we're, you know, we're going to have to, we're, we're limited to only being able to accept 23 or 24 people. So we're going to be turning away probably 10 people that have full funding for the program. Um, obviously not turning them away completely, but trying to encourage, uh, you know, finding a way for them to be able to pass that money forward to their 2025 program. But uh, we could be potentially fully inscribed this year and then halfway through uh, selection for 2025 you know, multiple years in advance, which is very exciting for an organization like ours that re entirely relies on grant funding. Yeah. Uh, who tends to be the applicant that comes to that course? I have an idea from having yeah. with them many times, but who, who do, sure. who are your markets? Yeah, so, so we, we, you know, we, um, we, I would say a good portion of our participants come from government run protected area systems in Latin America, but then we also receive quite a few applicants from uh, conservation NGOs, from universities, from private consulting firms, um, essentially, you know, even, even local community organizations. So any, you know, anybody that has um, a hand in or responsibility for the management or, or, or for, or caretaking responsibility for protected areas um, would, you know, would be interested in that course. I always remember uh, hearing George talk about uh, authority of the resource, that some of these people work in absolutely massive parks and with a staff of two or three or four, and they yeah. kind of have to be, Sometimes the superintendent, the the uh, emergency rescue, the <laughs> interpreter, yeah. uh, the fundraise, everything. Yeah. Oh yeah, no. We, there's a number of areas that we that we've been working with more, uh, quite a bit more, even on the ground in Latin America, in like Brazil, for example, in the Amazon of Brazil, where you have you have places that are two, three million acres in size, and they may have three people, you know. <laughs> It's just, it's just phenomenal. It's just, it's just phenomenal. It, it really, you know, it just is hard, hard to fathom um, how you can get that done. And that's one of, you know, one of the main, one of the main things that we've done um, to our program is we've reoriented the entire program based on um, three major themes, which is individual leadership, building coalitions of partners to support you and taking a systems thinking approach to understand pathways to solutions. And so that, you know, instead of in the beginning where we were really focused on building trails and developing management plans and those kinds of things, you know, it's incredible the work that that's being done in Latin America across all those fronts. And in fact, um, on many topics, Latin America is leading the world um, in topics like management effectiveness um, and payment for ecosystem services. Um, these are topics that Latin America are they are they are the global leaders, and so you know one of the things that, that that we're doing is just trying to understand where the gaps are, and and how can we as a center that's based in North America but focused on the Latin America region help facilitate opportunities that's more than training, that's more than capacity development. It's really about capacity sharing. We're facilitators of the experience, but people, everyone that's there together, are both teachers and learners, including ourselves. 
Um, and that's a, that's always been a big part of this program is, is, um, and, and, um, and, uh, I think one of the reasons why, um, there's high levels of demand for it. Uh, your curriculum that you use in the summer course or we're using, and I suppose it's still similar coming back in uh, 2024. What are kind of the focus areas? You just mentioned three of the overall uh, goals. Yeah. The, sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So those, those are the key themes. Um, um, individual leadership, coalition building, and systems thinking. Um, obviously, under each one of those, we have a, whole, a variety of topics that help develop out those skill sets to, to a different level. We also focus a lot on effective and equitable management of protected areas, so kind of the basic approaches that are needed to assure, ensure that with minimal resources and minimal staff, that, that the job people are doing is being done effectively. And then to make it even more challenging with very limited resources and you know people and funds, that we also need to really ensure that these areas are being managed equitably for all people. Um, and um, there's been a real push lately um, for um, um, equity in terms of um, racial equity, but also in terms of gender equity. Um, and and um, we've, we've received a lot of really good feedback from our, our participants in the past, not only about what could be learned in a in a one you know one month program, but also in uh, solicitation of support for creating structural supports within these protected area systems in Latin America for gender equity, for example. And so we've kind of gone into that direction a little bit more. Uh, we have a new team member from Mexico, and she's leading up our whole kind of gender equity initiative through our Center for Protected Area Management. Um, and so it's been really rewarding to, to work in some new spaces um, that previously we just weren't um, as involved with. And um, we're really kind of embracing the 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 broadening of the term protected area you know i think traditionally a lot of people thought of protected area as kind of government run areas so you know state level or federal level um, areas that are formally decreed by the government and, and really protected areas today is much more broad than that. And, and um, it's especially this, the case in marine areas where many of the areas in the world are managed by local communities or indigenous communities that have actually, in many cases, always had um, a strong connection to the land and have really um, important beneficial ways to approach that conservation that, uh, let's say, traditional Western science just doesn't understand. And so this idea of indigenous science um, incorporated into protected area management is also something we're very keen on. That's great. In Rwanda, where we've taken people a number of times up to see mountain gorillas and that sort of thing, uh, a major part of their program is to help the local communities improve their schools, their health care, uh, equity for all people in the community. And um, <laughs> we train guides there. And part of what we've always said to them is, you know, don't if you mention that it's a $1,500 permit to go spend one hour with mountain gorillas, be sure to state it differently. Say, yeah. thank you for your contribution. You're protecting gorillas 365 days a year. 24 seven uh, and you're helping the local community that lives adjacent to the gorillas who have to uh, share space and raising food, raising families and all of that. So yeah, I admire yeah. that effort everywhere. I see it too often in the past, our conservation efforts were 
great science, but not necessarily great social science. We didn't broaden oh. enough to understand why people poach or why people overfish or because usually it was for some very good reason, trying to feed a family, trying to survive as a fisherman. Exactly. Yeah. And, and I, I, we just have a lot of work to do, I think, to also um, rebuild um, trust with many people. I mean, protected areas, unfortunately, um, in the initial stages, many of them were developed very top down. Um, that also included taking away and excluding people from their traditional lands. And, you know, protected areas has to be inclusive of people and people's needs, um, has to be protected for people, not protected from people. And so changing that mindset and changing the way we we, we do business is the only way protected areas are going to continue to serve um, all of humanity in the provision of all those ecosystem environmental services and benefits, you know, and their contributions towards human well-being um, are, are if they can thrive. And they're only going to thrive if people feel like they're a part of the solution. And so that's what we've been working quite a bit on with um with our training courses with our programs with our partnerships is is really making helping to make protected areas more more friendly more friendly to people is interpretive training a part of your uh programming yeah so um we you know at, so the center for protected area management um at colorado state is essentially an outreach program um uh in the warner college of natural resources um like i mentioned we've been around for about 30 years now um and um, we do a variety of different programs. The summer course we've been talking about is kind of our flagship program that's been there since the beginning of time uh, of our center. Uh, but over the years, we've definitely branched out and created new programs to fill in additional needs. And um, interpretation is one of those areas that um, you know, through my involvement with Sam Ham and then NAI, that, that I've really have seen an opportunity for expanding the kinds of uh, training and getting more protected areas and protected area managers um, involved in interpretation in Latin America. Um, you, you know, one of the things I love about interpretation is, of course, you can have big, fancy visitor centers and amazing signs and all that, but um, we all know that takes a lot of money and even more money to maintain, you know, whatever you've built. But just in terms of how we think about communication, how we communicate with the visitors was something that in most parts of Latin America, when I uh, started working there 25 years ago, um, it was kind of left to the guides. The guides could be interpretive guides or not be interpretive guides, but the protected area that were hosting visitors really weren't that much involved, with the exception of a few countries. Um, you know, Argentina, Chile, a few other countries kind of got involved in interpretation pretty early on, but many of the other countries just hadn't kind of gotten to that level. And it's not because they weren't aware of the of interpretation, just they didn't have the staff. They didn't have you know, the ability to kind of bring it on. And so we've been trying to find funding to be able to bring some of that training and capacity sharing programs to protected area managers to find easy and expensive ways to reposition the communication of a protected area into the hands of managers and then for them to use that information as a way to build bridges with their local guides. Well, you got something done that I'd always hoped for. I We left NAI 2012 and um, and kind of working internationally, I'd always hope we'd get to Brazil. It's such a large country. It has such a huge, vast area in the Amazon basin of uh, relatively unexplored protected areas. 
And uh, I say unexplored, they're indigenous people that explore them very well. They know what they're doing, but I'm, mm-hmm. I'm aware we have yeah. a kind of a Western developed concept view of these things that isn't always fair or right. Uh, but you took NAI on an international conference in Brazil, yeah? Yeah, yeah, that was a that was an amazing experience. Um, you know, I I've been involved with a few of the of the NEI national conferences, and then um, as our work was really developing in Brazil, um, I, I felt like there was a really unique opportunity to to bring the NAI conference there. Um, it was essentially, I would say, a, the cherry on top of a six year program that we had been leading to help establish uh, interpretation formally as a conservation tool uh, at the federal level within the Brazilian uh, Chico Mendes Institute for Biodiversity Conservation, which is essentially kind of like their park service and forest service and fish and wildlife service combined. Um, And um, we had been working on a lot of training, um, a lot of on the ground projects um, involving people like uh, that 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 you that you know and that other others of your listeners might know, like Chris Mayer and Bonnie Lippett and um, Karen Hostetter. You know some of the people that were involved. Um, we also got Sam down to Brazil, Sam Ham. Um, but you know we had basically we're looking for a way to kind of capstone out this six-year program of work. We had many people that had been trained in interpretation in Brazil, and we were able to co-organize with the participation of the Brazilian government, um, the NAI conference. And I don't have the exact numbers, but approximately two-thirds of the participants, minimum of two-thirds, maybe it was even higher, we're Brazilians. And so they had a really good, strong contingent of international NAI members that go to these events, which are which was really important because it provided so many unique opportunities for these up-and-coming Brazilian interpreters to meet with these lifelong interpreters. But we were very, very proud that you know, two-thirds of the participants were from Brazil. Um, and we were able to orchestrate scholarships for them to participate and all this kind of thing. Um, and we had some amazing field trips, as you mentioned. We not only do we get people to the Atlantic rainforest, which is, you know, surrounds Rio de Janeiro, which is where the, where the, the conference was held. We also had trips up to the Amazon rainforest. Um, and so it really was a, a celebration event um, uh, of all that had been accomplished by the Brazil government. Um, and I think that in and of itself was, was super rewarding. Not, not to mention the fact that we were able to hold um, the opening event um, on the top of Rio de Janeiro's famous Sugarloaf Mountain. Uh, we were able to get that donated. It normally goes for like $20,000 an event. And we were able to get that space donated uh, to host this opening. Um, and so you can imagine the entire skyline of Rio de Janeiro in the background um, and just sitting on top of the, of the Sugarloaf Mountain, having the opening ceremony with the directors of the you know, neighboring national parks all there from the Brazilian government. Really, it was spectacular. spectacular. It was a really lifetime achievement, I think, because it was. I don't know if I'll ever be able to be involved in something like that in the future. But it was, uh, it was a lot of fun, a challenge, but a lot of fun. Well, I heard about it, but missed it, and I wish I'd been there. Um, no. I spoke last uh, week with a young lady who is in a certified interpretive guide course with us uh, virtually via Zoom uh, from Philippines. And I'm really mm. aware that in many of these nations, there are new adopters. There are people that <laughs> the, the most common story I heard is I got a hold of Sam Ham's book and read it, and I was fascinated. I wanted to know more. And uh, mm-hmm. so, uh, shout out to Sam. Uh, your book continues to uh, enter all different 
parts of the world and create an opportunity <laughs> for others of us to work there and get get acquainted with them. And through this partnership, we were able to get Sam's most recent book published in Portuguese. I mean, Sam Sam was the one that took that on, but was able to orchestrate that with some of our participants that we've been training over the years that were really interested in getting those resources into Portuguese. And so now we have uh, a whole, like I think over the last six years, we've gotten like three or four separate publications done in Portuguese now to support interpreters in Brazil, including Sam's most recent book. Oh, that's great. Well, and he, I think... In my conversation with him, he was saying he lets the royalties go back to the uh, the nation that gets it published because he wants to support their work. And uh, yeah. that's Admiral, amazing. an author. And amazing. Yeah, uh, amazing. Well, I, I'm really aware that um, in my 50 years plus years involvement in interpretation in the United States, we've had the luxury of uh, more access to money and support and agencies that, uh, let's face it, National Park Service led uh, a lot of other organizations to using interpretation as a communication approach. And so we have a long history with this, but many nations struggle to kind of get the basic impetus to begin to hold a conference or begin to, to create a professional network and I'm sure you're seeing these networks develop throughout Middle America, yeah? Yeah, yeah. There are some new new initiatives that have taken place to try to create um, interpretation, heritage interpretation um, networks of professionals. It's, that's amazing to see. Um, you know, um, at the country level, you're seeing more central level as well as uh, national park or protected area unit level people that are really excited about interpretation and its potential. Um, and so I, you know, I just had a student um, not too long ago at Colorado State that did a kind of an assessment of um, the use of interpretation across Latin America. And um, it was really interesting, the findings to see um, there's still, we're, you know, we're still in the kind of the middle development stage, let's say at best. And so there's still incredible opportunities for more interpretation to be rolled out across the landscape. Um, and uh, we, we, we um, have every intention of continuing to support protected area systems where we can um, on this topic area. Um, and uh, we've done it, you know, with a park by park approach, which, you know, can lead to good results at the site level. Um, and we've also done it like in Brazil at the national systems level, which we think probably has greater staying power, because once you get um, something like interpretation woven into the policy documents of the institution, it's there to stay. They're, they're going to continue to assign people to work in interpretation. They're going to continue to support the idea of interpretive training. And, um, you know, the Brazilian folks that were part of our program with the U.S. Forest Service International Programs for those six years um, now have trained three times the number of people that we trained during that six-year period on their own, you know. So that, that's, you know, that's that's the idea of what you want when you have these programs that creates true sustainability, um, and um, and not even and maybe the sustainability is not the right word. It's flourishability because the program is not just sustaining it at the same levels; it's actually growing. You know, so that's really really rewarding. Well, I continue to use Georgia's ART Authority of the Resource Training in every certified interpretive guide course I teach because. Um, <laughs> I recently dug through a box of old papers. You know how you save things that you wrote and yeah. you 
you think you're going to have some in use for them someday. I really don't. They're just a box collecting dust. In the <laughs> but uh, in going through it, I realized about 50 years ago, I wrote my first article on um, interpretation as a purpose, that it ought to serve the goals and objectives and mission of the organization that hires it done. I, I've watched this tragically time after time be uh, kind of Groundhog Day in, infected where um, a program builds up when a state or a county or a municipality is lush with funds and they hire interpreters and they put them out in their parks or zoos or museums or whatever. And then when the budget cut comes, that's the first thing cut. And yeah. my, my admonition is always be more useful to your organization. They they won't cut you if they think you're doing something important to their survival and their ability to accomplish objectives. And if you're just entertainment in the protected area or entertainment in the park or entertainment in the zoo, uh, I'm not sure yeah. you have a future. And yeah, no, so true. Yeah. And, and you know, one of the things, I mean, there's so much um, evidence that's come out lately um, about the human well-being um, benefits of spending time in nature. But I think I really do think that one of the next big areas of work in interpretation in Latin America, especially, is telling that story to to its public because the many protected area systems in Latin America don't have the same level of public support that we do have in the United States, where the National Park Service or the National Forest Service generally tend to be fairly um, well-respected institutions for the most part. Um, and a lot of places in Latin America, those protected area institutions aren't even that well-known by the public. And so if those institutions can start telling the story to the public about how they support the human well-being of their population to get people outdoors and recreating and, and spending time in nature. Um, I, I think that could go a long way to positioning those institutions for greater levels of public support. One of the areas of research I used to talk about when I was traveling for NAI and speaking at universities was I think we need more research about the value or role of interpretation in tourism um, because, you know, there are groups like Lindblad Expeditions that make interpretation a key part of their um, the way they approach things. But um, I think we need to translate it into dollar values and values to achieving objectives at the community level in all sorts of other ways. And I haven't seen that much research done. I'm, I still quote Sam's research with Lindblad Expeditions because it was all about increasing donations to Darwin Research Center and Galapagos, um, uh -huh. but we don't have enough of those kinds of studies. And yet tourism is built on, we want return visits. We want people to go back home and tell their friends, you've got to do this. This is important. And uh, I, I think having great interpretive experiences, especially in the communities, can end up being a key to having people leave as advocates and donors and uh, respecters of the resource and the, the place rather than been there, done that, got the picture. Exactly. Yeah, no, you're right. Without, without the interpretation piece, essentially you're, you're taking the same Instagrammable selfie that every other single visitor has taken. And therefore there's no meaning whatsoever in that visit, or for the most part, um, it hasn't gotten to the level of meaning that it could if that interpretation really helped, helped you create those meanings in your head, um, as Sam always talks about. So, yeah. 
Well, I'm going to hope that your program continues to grow and flourish. And uh, I'm curious, um, you also serve on a World Commission on Protected Areas. What is that? Yeah, so the World Commission on Protected Areas is one of six commissions that's part of the International Union for the Conservation of Nature. And it's essentially, um, you know, a volunteer group um, of specialists that get together and try to help shape um, the collective work of the union. Um, and um, it's basically a great way for us as CPAM, as the Center for Protected Area Management, to stay connected with what's going on in the world, to, to learn from others, and to hopefully help positively shape the future of IUCN's work. Because, you know, all these, you know, a lot of these big international agreements are uh, are informed to a, to, a, to a high degree by IUCN, whether it's, um, you know, our approach uh, on climate change or on, on deforestation and degradation, or the big one that's, you know, we're staying in tune with now, which is 30 by 30, which is essentially this big global goal to establish uh, 30% of the Earth's surface, land and waters, um, as protected areas by 2030. So there's a lot of these kind of international, um, you know, agreements and charters that that are informed through participation um, in IUCN's commissions, including the WCPA, which is the World Commission on Protected Areas. That's great. Mm-hmm. I hear you talk about global climate change, and I just read an article this morning about the kind of the our inability to correctly project how fast uh, ocean levels are going to rise and what the impacts are going to be on coastal communities that are so often indigenous communities. I mean, it's some of our big cities like New Orleans and New York City, but it's there's a lot of indigenous yeah. people in the world living on edge. And oh, edge yeah. really often is the edge of a river, the edge of an ocean, whatever. And yeah. uh, what are the challenges you're facing with CPAM? What do you what do you see as the big challenges for the next decade? Well, I mean, I could definitely, you know, there's a lot of those big, big environmental challenges we could talk to. Uh, but I guess, you know, if I'm if I'm thinking institutionally, um, there's no doubt that the the one biggest challenge that we face is is funding. Um, we're kind of in a strange space. Uh, when it comes to fundraising, because we're, you know, we're a university center. So we operate in, in you know, housed within a university, but we essentially operate as an NGO. Um, we receive no funding from the state of Colorado or Colorado State University. So 100% of our, of our salaries and our operations, you know, have to be raised through donations and grants. But yet people, when they look at a university center, that's a, that's a state land grant university. They expect that center to be funded. And so it's really this, you have to, you have to constantly explain how you're not funded. You have no funding, you know, and, and I think it's just tiresome. And, and then if you think about, well, who's going to donate to a university, it's the alma mater, right? It's, your alma, it's whoever, whoever graduated from here, they're the ones that typically donate to universities, the real deep pocket donors, you know, they're donating to conservation NGOs that are independently established as NGOs. And so we kind of find ourselves in this kind of really unusual middle ground where um, it's hard to fundraise. And then, you know, being within a university housed deep within the university, if, if somebody finds somebody with big, deep pockets, um, it's probably not going to trickle down to our little center. You know, yeah. there somebody else is going to take that for a new stadium or for, you know, some other, uh, the football, football coaches salaries or something, you know? And so it's, it's, it's a struggle uh, to find ways to sustainably fund our center. And yet, 
um, you know, one of the things it's, it's created is a lot of ingenuity and, and creativity among our staff to be as creative as we can about how to keep our operations flowing. Well, I, I'm sympathetic. 30 years of being a nonprofit manager. Yep. One of the first things I did in Audubon River Trails Nature Center that I took over in 1980 in Pueblo, Colorado, was ask that the Audubon name be taken off of it. The local mm-hmm. Audubon chapter helped start the Nature Center, but there was zero dollars in Audubon funding coming to it. And as soon as, yeah. as soon as you put the Audubon name on a local nature center, everybody's thought was, oh, well, they're getting big money out of National Audubon, so they don't need us. And we mm-hmm. were getting nothing from them. And they were very clear with us, you're never going to get anything from us. <laughs> we didn't create you. Your local chapter did. Um and so I severed the relationship and I, I did it for communication value. But I, I know that a, at a university, you have that challenge. There are wonderful soft money projects happening at universities. My my son and I just did an interview because he's working with artificial intelligence and he's the assistant director of the a Center for Virtual uh, Expression at Southern Illinois University. And He's totally on soft money. And he, he's asking me for the first time in our, he's 46. So our conversations have never been about fundraising. And suddenly they're about it every day because yep. when I got a $4 million grant proposal, I got to write right now and negotiate with another department on who gets what percentage of the money and what, what do we do with it? And, uh, it's been fun, but it, it's serious business. And uh, your organization does such great work. I I will hope you continue to find those funders. Um, we we call them angels in the gifting business, and they're not easy to locate. They're uh, no, no, they're not. They're not. But we we do we definitely have our share shares of angels, and I, you know we we we've had a twenty year partnership with the U.S. Forest Service International Programs Office, and they've been incredible partners both technical partners, you know, as well as fund, uh, funding partners for the work that we that we develop, you know, collaboratively with them all across the world. Um, in fact, they've been able to help us expand beyond Latin America. Now we are working a bit in Africa and Asia as well and Eastern Europe. And, and so them, and obviously I mentioned earlier, George and Nancy Wallace, and um, we do have incredible support at CSU, you know, going all the way up you know, in our department, all the way up to the college, the dean, um, and so you know, it's it's a it's a just a matter of kind of diversifying our funding sources, staying after it, building the apparatus that allows us to better tell our story, um, and and create additional connections, um, and that's that's kind of what we're planning on keeping on working at o- over the years as we stay laser focused on our, our overall mission. And, you know, and I, you know, um, we, we go back and forth internally about it, but, you know, we've, we've had this long mission that tries to throw everything in the, including the kitchen sink into what we're trying to do. And just lately with this next generation of bright minded folks that are on our team they're they've kind of come up with this new mission that just says, we're all about creating a shared sense of hope for the future. Oh. It's not this long laundry list of everything that we do and how we do it and what we know. That's essentially why we bring team people together. We share capacity and we hope that they leave our programs with a shared sense of collective hope for the future. And I thought, man, that's it. That's really what we're here for. And so if we can keep telling that story to more people and to more donors. I think we're going to be all right. Well, thank you for sharing all of that with our listeners. Uh, 
I don't know that many of them have angel potential, but on the other <laughs> hand, the, the more we let everybody know about what we do and how we approach it, uh, the more valuable it is. And I've been an admirer of your program for as long as I've known about it. So I wish you well in the future. And as always, my best regards to Michelle and to George Wallace and Nancy and all the people in your network. Um, yeah, thank you, Tim. I, I really appreciate the opportunity uh, to connect again. We sure do miss you all in Fort Collins. Um, you always loved having you here. And um, I feel fortunate that I have had a chance to see you and Lisa out there in Hawaii on a on a family trip and able to stop by and say hello. And, and um, you know, just appreciate all the work you're doing and, and appreciate this opportunity to, to tell a little bit about what we're doing at CSU. Um, so thanks so much. Well, all best wishes. Well, thanks for joining Ryan and me today on Reflections on Interpretation. I'm moving to every two weeks for this podcast in the future. And two weeks from now, I will have as a guest, Helena Vicic from Slovenia. She is the General Director of Interpret Europe. Join us then. Thanks again to Mark Stoffel for use of his beautiful mandolin music. This time it's Buckminster Waltz from his Coffee and Cake album. Have a wonderful week.